Let me just check the sound first. Is that okay? Not too loud? Nope. Uh, just to take a moment at the beginning to again express my appreciation for your practice, a real commitment, sincerity of your practice. And uh, encourage you too to take time to appreciate the practice. Maybe at the end of the day, uh, maybe as you're going to bed, as you're lying down, just appreciating the merit of your practice during the day. I remember the advice first given me to me from uh, James many years ago to do that. There you are. <laughs> so I'd like to begin with a story. It's uh, a story for our time. I really think it's a beautiful story for our time. But the story is from about 2,300 years ago. It's a story of King Ahsoka. He was a king in one of the largest areas of what is now India. And he ruled for over 30 years, for so a very long dynasty. And he was known as being a very brutal king at war with the neighboring kingdoms trying to get more territory, unkind, brutal to his own people. It was said that 100,000 people died in battles during the time that he was king. And I was surprised to learn too that 150,000 people were deported. So even at that time. After one particularly Brutal, bloody battle. The king was on the battlefield and he saw the carnage on the battlefield. Something must have moved in his heart. And then he saw a monk who was serene, who was walking across the battlefield. And the king approached the monk and said, If so, are you happy? And if so, how come you're happy? And the monk, as an act of kindness and compassion, shared the Buddha's precious teachings. And when I reflect on that story, I think the monk might have approached that battlefield and might have seen the unpleasantness, great unpleasantness of seeing all that carnage, all the dead bodies might have looked another direction, maybe to a beautiful forest, and turned in that direction instead. The monk might have heard the king speak and then spoken words of anger, maybe said, why did you do this? How could you do this? How could you cause all these deaths? The monk might have chosen to just ignore the king, perhaps kind of close out what he was seeing, just walk by silently. But the monk acted from kindness, from compassion, even for one who had caused all that suffering. And the king was fundamentally changed by the sharing of the Buddha's teachings. He became a Buddhist practitioner. He became known as a benevolent king to his people, at peace with the neighboring territories. And his son and daughter became practitioners. 
they carried the practice to Sri Lanka. From there, the practice was carried to Burma and Thailand. That nameless monk, his act of peace and love, of compassion, is in the lineage of our practice, is in the lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw, whom Annie talked about on Wednesday night. And the right intention, I see the right intention of that monk, that monk who was serene at peace as things were just as they were, a peace that couldn't be disturbed by any external condition of the world. Fundamental happiness that couldn't be shaken. Happiness not dependent on conditions. He had the intentions of renunciation, of a renunciant, giving up the attachments to the material world and letting go of things needing to be any particular way, the deep renunciation that we're practicing with. And he had the intention of kindness, this metta, loving kindness, even for one who had caused harm, and the intention of compassion, a wise and compassionate heart. So it's a story for our time. I'd like to think that perhaps there is a serene monk in our country who can have that impact serene muck in the world. We never know how our acts of kindness and compassion can ripple through. But this practice of right intention can really support us too in our practice right here on the retreat. In our practice, particularly in working with the five hindrances, could say that are right at the heart of practice. The five hindrances that cloud the heart and mind, that prevent the clear seeing. The words from the Buddha. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind. The attachments of their five hindrances cloud the mind. And then the Buddha says, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of, of the way really understands. So for them, there is a cultivation of mind. This is what we're doing with our practice. So it's the five hindrances that prevent the clear luminosity from coming forth. And it really is a key part of our practice to bring attention to these hindrances to know when they're present, to bring interest, attention to the hindrances, to know when they're absent, to use the tools of practice that serve to cause the hindrances to fade away, and use tools of practice to prevent, to prevent the arising of the hindrances. As the hindrances begin to subside, then mindfulness strengthens, concentration strengthens, a deeper energy arises and a greater sense of curiosity and investigation into the nature of the experience right here. And this is what leads to deeper insights, leads to the deeper release of the heart, leading in the direction of that unconditional happiness that was present with that serene monk on the battlefield. 
So it's really at the heart of our practice. Our practice is not to try and block the hindrances from arising, not to try and just ride through them, but to allow the attention to rest with the hindrances. So the five hindrances are greed, our desire, aversion, or expressed as ill will or hatred sometimes, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and doubt. And as the Buddha often does, he used a metaphor to describe these five hindrances. He said that greed was like water with dye in it. We look with Look at water with dye in it. We see the color more than we see the water. We can't really see into the clarity and purity of the water. Can't see deep into the water. Aversion is like boiling water, turbulent water, kind of the heat of anger or impatience that we may feel. Sloth and torpor is like water overgrown with algae. And when a pond is fully overgrown with algae, can't see into the water at all. And then restlessness is like water stirred up by the wind. There's a lot of wind, there's a rippling on the water and you can't see in. So if you're standing maybe on a walk by the Gaston Pond on the dam on the road, the little dam, it's a windy day and you look into the water, probably not gonna be able to see to the shallow bottom there. And then doubt is like muddy water. Just can't see in the muddy water at all. Think of the Mississippi River. I grew up in St. Louis, right by the Mississippi River. And such a muddy river, wouldn't really want to put your hand in it. But if you put your hand in it, even one inch deep, you couldn't see your hand. That's the effect of doubt. Much beloved teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who led the three-month retreat here for over 40 years. He says that when we attend these states carefully, we learn to see into their empty, transparent nature and no longer get caught up in their seductive power. So we ultimately, as we pay attention to the hindrances, we see they're empty, no substance, not self completely transparent when we bring attention to them. And as we bring more attention to them, we see how seductive and alluring they can be, but ultimately unsatisfactory, dukkha. And then Joseph says, they then become the focus of our mindfulness and the very vehicle of our awakening. So they're the focus of the mindfulness when they're present. And they're arising for all of us. As we deepen in practice, we can see these arising at a more and more microscopic level, these forces of greed and aversion and delusion, the defilements, the kalesis. And they're the very vehicle for our awakening. It's not a problem. It's the path of practice, to practice with these hindrances. And to practice through them right here right in this body, following the instructions the teachers have been providing, becoming more and more intimate. I love to use the word intimate, kind of going more directly, more deeply inside into the direct experience. 
kind of the right hereness. The beautiful thing of this practice that the Buddha said the whole of the truth is to be found in this fathom long body. We really don't need to look to an external source at all. And that the realizations are what matter. We don't need to adopt a set of beliefs, even believe the Buddha's words, believe the words of the teachers. It's all about the direct realization right here of the Dharma, of the truth, of the way things are. So the hindrances, as I said, arise for everyone and they arise right up into the point of Buddhahood. On the night before the Buddha's enlightenment, hindrances were still arising, arising in the form of fear. And the Buddha would say when the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion would appear, he'd say, I see you Mara, kind of the figure of Mara that represents these defilements. So I see you Mara, just a simple acknowledgement I acknowledge the presence of these hindrances, whatever the hindrances that may be arising. So in effect, we're welcoming, we're welcoming all of these visitors, even the hindrances, even welcoming greed, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt, because they are the vehicle for our awakening. And as we practice with the hindrances, the water begins to clear. We see that the clear water, perfectly pure, perfectly still, like the nature of our own hearts and minds. So again, just to uh, summarize a tool before I get into the talking about the five hindrances is to recognize and acknowledge the presence of the hindrance, in effect, welcome it, go into it, and to recognize when the hindrance is not present Perhaps there's a sense of clarity, of ease, maybe a sense of greater energy arising. To use as tools of practice, the tools we're offering to support the fading away of the hindrances, the hindrance that's present. And then to cultivate the factors that support the hindrances not arising in the future. So the taking refuge deeply supports the hindrances not arising, deeply supports kind of our ability to look into and see the hindrances as they arise. Taking refuge here and stepping outside of the busy world, we begin to see things more clearly. Taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and the practice of accepting just what's offered accepting the food, accepting the room temperature in the hall, accepting the conditions. Part of the practice that supports that letting go, that supports the heart of renunciation. And we take refuge together in the Sangha that really supports our practice, that supports supports the stability to allow the clear seeing of the forces of these hindrances that cloud the heart and mind. Bhati used the word harmony and sangha or coming into harmony and being together, especially as we take the five or eight precepts, supporting this environment of non-harming. I like to think too, we're really coming in harmony with our own hearts 
when we deeply practice, more fully commit to these precepts. I know from my own experience, when I didn't follow the precepts, the effect that it had on practice is startling. One retreat some years ago, it's a self-retreat, really hot, must have been 110 degrees in the little cottage I was in. And a lot of spiders, I was bitten by a spider and uh, actually I think it was a black widow, I'm not sure. My leg kind of swelled up, but I didn't need to leave the retreat. Um, a little scary. <laughs> but instinctively I reached out and I slapped that spider. And it still kind of breaks my heart to know that I violated the precept in doing that. I violated the precept of non-harming. And for about a day it felt like I was just knocked out of practice. I had to be with the impact of that and the heart and body. And really it was felt like there was a fog and awareness from that rattling that came with not following that precept. Another time, more recently, about five years ago, after many years of practice, I decided to leave my cell phone turned on for a retreat. And I'd been carrying a cell phone for, I think, uh, since 1992, when cell phones almost first came out. They were like the size of a shoe. Um, and for my job, I had to be on call uh, all the time. But when I started going on retreats, I didn't carry my cell phone. I would just leave the number for the manager's office, uh, really honoring the precepts. But on this one occasion, I didn't do that. So it was an emergency I thought it was a difficult situation at work and I had to check messages. As it turned out, it wasn't a problem at all. So I made the mistake. But I kept checking tech for text messages and emails and phone calls. And what I found, it was a complete waste of time being on the retreat. I might as well not have been there. There was no settling in whatsoever. So if you still have an electronic device, <laughs> Take that as some advice. So to speak in more detail about the hindrances and offer some specific tips. So again, greed or desire, like water with dye in it, the Buddha said, could also be described as being like wearing rose-colored glasses. And interesting that rose-colored glasses were given to Civil War soldiers who were suffering from depression, trying to give them a more optimistic look on life. So greed and desire is driven by wanting what is pleasant, what is pleasurable. And it's rooted in the confusion of there being anything permanent, anything permanent of this world, anything permanent of what we love and care about in the material world, it's permanent that we can hang on to. And we realize as we practice and looking at the forces of greed, that it's dukkha, that it's, it's ultimately unsatisfactory. And that it's transparent, empty, not self. It's an arising and passing condition. A good warning bell on greed is, is a sense of if only. If there's a sense of if only my neighbor on the next cushion would be quieter, or 
Only that yogi would move a little faster through the food line. If only I could have the peaceful sit I had an hour ago. That's the force of greed taking hold. It can really manifest as a sense of having never enough in our society, this uh, sense of wanting more money, more goods, more things that make us happy, not finding satisfaction in that, and then wanting more and more and more, kind of like the hungry ghosts. It's actually one of the things that brought me to practice, um, kind of that sense of unsatisfactoriness of things in the material world. Even though I had the things in the material world, I still value a partner that I love, now been now married after 25 years together. Never thought that would happen, uh, two men getting married. Um, I had a great job, one where I could be of service to people, to the public, nice house, had good health, but it was so clear it wasn't enough. Maybe you've had this feeling too, like something's missing, it wasn't enough. There is a happiness in those things. I still value those things, but something sent a signal it wasn't enough. There's a, must be a deeper happiness. And this is the happiness of the path of our practice, the happiness that's not dependent on health or finances or relationships or anything transitory in the material world. Sometimes the force of greed can take force around attaching our happiness to someone else's happiness. And I used to do this 30 years ago when I broke up with my ex-partner, it came down to this. I said, I just want you to be happy, placing my happiness on his happiness. And he responded angrily, I don't want to be happy. <laughs> so that's some real confusion. <laughs> so sometimes too, we can, this force of greed, um, and take hold around meditative states. You know, maybe we have some deep meditative experience, a meditative state in that sense of, of, aha, I've got it. And then we want to hang on to that meditative state, thinking that's going to bring lasting happiness. So greed can arise even around our practice. So a tool in working with this is to acknowledge, bring more intimacy to the direct experience, go into the body, Use the tool of mindfulness, the tool of our practice as guide to find it, to understand what your experience is in the present moment. Just the hereness of this pre present moment experience. We can really begin to see how desire can sometimes arise with an alluring object. It may be like a sexual fantasy or maybe a vision of some place that we really like, like a, being on the beach. For me, I, I love being on the beach in Hawaii, on Maui, I have a favorite beach. It's actually 4,000 feet down the slope from a self-retreat meditation center. I visited that meditation center before, a beautiful center, but it would never work for me. I could not sit at that retreat center and see that beach 4,000 feet below and know that I couldn't go there. But that uh, image often has arisen in my mind when I'm on retreat. I, I want to envision being in the water. I love to body surf 
love to do open water swimming in the ocean. And that image would come up and I could see it come up and nope, I'm gonna stay right here with this direct moment to moment experience. Come up again, come up again, and then I'd finally give in. I'm just gonna go there for 30 seconds. I just wanna enjoy this fantasy for 30 seconds. Five minutes later, four stories later, ah, lost in thinking. Let go, return to the breath body experience. So there is a choice point we can see. We can see this alluring object arise, see the force of this desire, know its unsatisfactoriness, know that it's going to pass away and stay with the practice. So aversion, aversion or hatred or ill will compared to being like boiling or turbulent water. It's often felt as anger, impatience, jealousy, envy, rage even. And it manifests as uh, physical pain, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant situations, not getting what we want or getting what we don't want. So some reflections on unpleasant thoughts, the social justice issues, how to work with unpleasant thoughts around social justice issues, what what I'm doing with my own practice. I've seen the efforts to roll back transgender rights, LGBTQI rights, and it's, when I first saw these steps being taken, I felt anger really felt contracted, tightened up, kind of got lost in it for a couple days. And then there is a reminder, aha, I have this practice. Let's check this out. Go into the body. What's the feelings? What are the emotions? There's disappointment, there's frustration, there's sadness, maybe there's a little grief. And then a softening and an opening happens in bringing that mindfulness into the practice and bringing the intention of kindness and non-harming into the practice. And in effect, what has been done is I've, through the practice of mindfulness, I'm not allowing myself, not allowing my happiness to be controlled by someone else's actions. I've let go around outcomes. I've let go around the way other people need to behave. It doesn't mean that I still don't speak and act on the truth and what I think is important. It's my wish to be an advocate, an ally, for especially for people in the transgender community who are so marginalized. But I know that from looking at figures like Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, that acted from that place of great peace, of great love, they had the greatest power in their voice, a much more powerful voice than a voice that is filled with rage and anger. Not that the feelings of anger or rage are wrong, they're just the emotions that are arising. But we can choose to be with the emotions, bring mindfulness to them, go into the body experience, and then work from our deepest intentions of renunciation, kindness, and non-harming. 
Sometimes, too, it can get in, caught in reactivity around things that never even happened. I'm sure you all connect with like getting caught up in some story, getting really angry, maybe not being able to sleep. Kind of a small version of this, not, not such a big version, but a couple years ago here on retreat, the start of the retreat, I kept hearing this knock, knock. I thought, well, one yogi knocking on another yogi's door, saying a final few words. I started hearing it a couple times a day in my room. Oh, maybe they're sitting together in the room. Interesting. And I started hearing in five-minute periods, six or seven knock-knocks in close succession. What in the world's going on? Who might this person be on the floor who's having a meditation session in their room? Why are they doing this? This is not the way to practice. Kind of mind starting to spin out a little bit, not in a big way. But then I walked down the hall to the bathroom right around after hearing that series of six or seven knocks. And as I was coming back down the hall to the other end, there was a doorway leading to a stairwell. Saw someone exit. The door closed, kind of bounced against the door frame. Knock, knock. The whole story gone. <laughs> Now this is the force of aversion. We can get really angry sometimes over things that never even happened. And then um, unpleasant situations, unpleasant situations, maybe unpleasant sensations in the body, painful sensations in the body can be really powerful forces for aversion and hatred. And this was, again was one of the things that brought me to practice. I had a lot of pain in my body and it wouldn't go away, and the doctors couldn't figure it out. And you know, I really hated that pain. I really had to get rid of that pain to be happy. That was my feeling. And it's what brought me to practice. I have to feel grateful for it now. <laughs> that brought me to practice. And I started following the tools of practice, of going into the body. I use this tool of RAIN the acronym R-A-I-N, recognizing, accepting, being interested in, and not identifying. So I started bringing that into the painful sensations, the difficult emotions that were present. I brought attention to the part of the body where the pain was the most difficult. I started naming the qualities of heat, fire, contraction, vibration, I started to see that the, it wasn't so hard and tight as I thought. Emotions started arising of anger, sadness, fear, grief. And then stories. Sometimes stories seem to come out of the body as we practice. Stories arise, part of the purification process, purification of our own hearts. That so fully changed the experience of those sensations. I still get those sensations of the body in that part of the body, but they're no longer painful. They're just sensations. It's not always the case, but in this case, all of the suffering was due to the resistance to the sensations. So check it out. Use this tool of RAIN to go into the direct body experience, to check out the emotions, the 
painful sensations, inviting kindness, inviting softening around those areas, maybe bringing in compassion, maybe to say, I'm suffering, may I be free of suffering. Just a simple acknowledgement that there is suffering present is an act of compassion in itself. I had that with that physical sensation. It was registering as aversion to aversion. So it's important to remember the words of the Buddha that hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred is healed by love alone. This is the eternal law. So kind of resisting, turning away from, hating the aversive feelings, the fear, the anger, the sadness, whatever form the aversion may be taking, hating it isn't going to solve anything. It just, in a way, is like it's going to be take us away from the direct experience. But if aversion to aversion is arising, then that becomes a practice too. So it's whatever present, is whatever is present. And I love those words, hatred is healed by love alone. It kind of acknowledges that hatred is a sickness, an illness kind of a dis-ease of the heart. And we can use the tool of metta sometimes too to support our practice, not as a way of riding by the aversion or the difficult emotions, but just bringing in metta, phrases of loving kindness that James offered initial instructions on yesterday, to maybe have a period of the day to offer metta phrases, starting with oneself, or just bringing in the phrases occasionally However, it works for your own practice, but they can be deeply supportive of practice. When there's a sense of really over, being overtaken by, a, by an emotion, a fear, anger, especially, it can be div- beneficial maybe to just return to the body experience, feel the sits bones in the chair or the cushion, kind of stepping away when the emotion is overwhelming. Fear especially can be a a sense of real contraction in which the whole world seems to close in at times. Particularly true sometimes for people who have phobias. Uh, So it's useful when there's a feeling of fear being overwhelming to just open the eyes, look around the room, see space. Look at space. Look at the window, look out the window at the sky. just provides some relief, some spaciousness, some ease to do that. So, sloth and torpor. Again, I'll mention that all these hindrances are arising for all of us. Probably all five of these have arisen for most of the people in this room at some point already on the retreat. So sloth and torpor is kind of the yuck of a water overgrown by algae, where it's difficult to see the water at all. So it can be sleepiness, which is very natural at the beginning of a retreat. In the first week of a retreat, often I take three or four short naps a day. So it's, it's perfectly fine to get a little bit more rest at the beginning of the retreat to support your practice. Standing up is also fine. I've seen a few people do that. It's part of the meditation practice. It's fine to stand up in the middle of a sitting period if it serves your practice. Sloth and torpor can also be a real deep sinking feeling, kind of a real deep dullness in the mind. 
that real sense of water being that's fully overgrown with algae. You just can't see see into anything at all. So a couple tools are to, to again connect with the body, name what's present, heaviness, dullness, thickness. Maybe there'll be some connection to some sense of vibration or pulsing or something else that begins to shift the practice a little bit. Or you can bring attention to sounds because that kind of brings the attention outwards, open and again open opens up the sense of space. So allowing the hearing hearing to be the object of meditation. And then it's also uh, true that sometimes sloth and torpor, I've seen this arise in my own practice where some difficult emotion is coming up or some difficult story, kind of not, not wanting to remember that story or that feeling. And it's almost like sloth and torpor arises as a protection but we really don't need that sloth and torpor as a protection. So to bring attention to what may be underlying that, not to, not to try and figure out, but bring interest, curiosity, investigation into the direct body experience. So the fourth um, hindrance is restlessness. It's like water stirred up by the wind, that sense of agitation. So restlessness, again, is a very common thing at the beginning of a retreat. It can be the kind of the restlessness in the mind where we can't stick with any object for very long at all. Maybe a sense of bubbling up energy in the body. It can be a kind of energy being out of balance. So it could be useful just to take longer walks, maybe during the day. Uh, maybe walk a little faster during the meditation practice. Use the tool of Vitaka and Vichara, return to the breath, aiming, sustaining, just with a very fine precision with the breath, a good way to reconnect with the practice and maybe move beyond the, the restlessness that's present. But to also name and be aware, to feel in the restlessness that's being experienced. So doubt is like muddy water, no visibility in the water at all. And oftentimes we can't see that doubt is even present. Uh, it's so powerful. It it's, can be the most pernicious of the five hindrances. So it can take the form, it can be a sense of vacillation. Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Should I have been on this retreat? Should I have been on another retreat? It's a kind of a warning signal on doubt. And to name this as doubt, kind of I see you Mara, is a very useful tool. So you know, seeing doubt arising, I've heard this from some practitioners already, of doubt is this should be this, should this be the retreat that I attended? Am I capable of realizing this higher happiness? Kind of doubt in our own practice doubt in our own ability to make progress in the path. So we can recall that the Buddha said that everyone, this practice is available for everyone, that everyone can realize the benefits of this practice. And it's very useful to re recognize that this doubt is the very opposite of faith. 
Doubt is the very opposite of faith. Faith being the trusting confidence in the heart. So when doubt arises, reconnect with your deepest inspiration. Your deepest inspiration for practice, your deepest inspiration for being here on retreat. You might, when you walk in the hall, just as you're, if you want someone who likes to bow to the Buddha, as you're bowing to take that moment to reflect on your intention. You can also just simply acknowledge, here I am. I'm here for the six weeks or three months. I might as well stay with the practice. There's no benefit in questioning whether I should have been somewhere else on another kind of retreat on the beach in Hawaii, whatever it might be. So, our practice is to be here right now, to practice with mindfulness, to be fully present when the forces of the hindrances arise, not to turn away from them, not to push them away, not to try and make our experience different. For many years, I didn't quite believe that when the teacher said it. <laughs> I'd always try and push around the edges, try and get past something, try and make something happen. It's a spiritual bypass. It doesn't work. Take it from someone who's tried. <laughs> Just be with a direct experience. Just let go. Let go to the experience just as it is. This is a practice. As Carol said, the Dharma takes care of itself. The Dharma reveals itself. Our practice is to let go, to have the intention of kindness, the intention of non-harming, allowing compassion to arise as a natural response of the heart to suffering. As we practice the beautiful qualities of the heart, begin to come forth, begin to shine. The beautiful qualities of loving kindness, of compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity. Ultimately, these are innate qualities of the heart. We cultivate, we practice with these, but we realize these are innate, you could say innate qualities of the heart of awareness itself. So these qualities begin to come forth more strongly. And we see the confidence in our practice really strengthen as we commit full, more fully to the letting go, more fully committing to practices, practicing with the hindrances. In effect, welcoming everything. Welcoming everything. Maybe noting, I see you, Mara. So from Ajahn Chah, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still like a clear forest pool. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. Problems will arise and you will see through them immediately. This is the happiness of the Buddha. In the clear water, 
using the metaphor of the Buddha of water, of water, the clear water, the purity of the heart, mind, is already here. We're just practicing to allow these forces of greed, aversion, and delusion to fade away, to let the Dharma do the work, putting our complete trust, our faith, confidence of the heart in the Dharma. So again, in ending, as we practice with the hindrances, acknowledge when the hindrances are present, be intimate with the direct experience, know when the hindrances are absent, appreciate that too. Use the tools of practice of being fully present, other tools to support the hindrances subsiding. And then also use the tools of practice that will support the hindrances not arising. So, appreciate your attention and let's sit for a few minutes. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still like a forest pool. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. Problems will arise and you will see through them immediately. This is the happiness of the Buddha. period and return at nine o'clock for chanting. <laughs> 